Chapter Eighteen of the Conquest of Canaan by Booth Tarkington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen In the Heat of the Day. It was a morning of the warmest week of mid July, and Canaan lay inert and helpless beneath a broiling sun. The few people who moved about the streets went languidly, keeping close to the wall on the shady side the women in thin white fabrics the men often coatless carrying palm-leaf fans and replacing collars with handkerchiefs in the courthouse yard the maple leaves gray with blown dust and grown to great breadth drooped heavily depressing the long motionless branches with their weight so low that the four or five shabby idlers upon the benches beneath now and then flicked them sleepily with whittled sprigs the doors and windows of the stores stood open displaying limp wares of trade but few tokens of life the clerks hanging over dim counters as far as possible from the glare in front gossiping fragmentarily usually about the cory murder and anon upon a subject suggested by the sight of an occasional pedestrian passing perspiring by with scrooge eyelids and purpling skin from street and sidewalk transparent hot waves swarm up and dance themselves into nothing while from the river bank a half mile away came a sound hotter than even the locust's midsummer rasp the drone of a planing mill a chance boy lying prone in the grass of the courthouse yard was annoyed by the relentless chant and lifted his head to mock it shut up can't you the effort was exhausting he relapsed and suffered with increasing malice but in silence abruptly there was a violent outbreak on the national house corner as when a quiet farmhouse is startled by someone's inadvertently bringing down all the tin from a shelf in the pantry the loafers on the benches turned hopefully saw what it was then closed their eyes and slumped back into their former positions the outbreak subsided as suddenly as it had arisen colonel flitcroft pulled mr arp down into his chair again and it was all over greater heat than that of these blazing days could not have kept one of the sages from attending the conclave now for the battle was on in canaan and here upon the national house corner under the shadow of the west wall it waxed even keener perhaps we may find full justification for calling what was happening a battle in so far as we restrict the figure to apply to this one spot elsewhere in the canaan of the tocsin the conflict was too one-sided the tocsin had indeed tried the case of happy fear in advance had convicted and condemned and every day grew more bitter nor was the urgent vigor of its attack without effect sleepy as main street seemed in the heat the town was incensed and roused to a tensity of feeling it had not known since the civil war when on occasion it had set out to hang half a dozen knights of the golden circle joe had been hissed on the street many times since the inimical clerk had whistled at him probably demonstrations of that sort would have continued had he remained in canaan but for almost a month he had been absent and his office closed its threshold gray with dust 
There were people who believed that he had run away again, this time never to return. Among those who held to this opinion being Mrs. Loudon and her sister, Joe's step-aunt. Upon only one point was everybody agreed, that twelve men could not be found in the county who could be so far persuaded and befuddled by Loudon that they would dare to allow happy fear to escape. The women of Canaan, incensed by the terrible circumstance of the case, as the tocsin colored it, a man shot down in the act of begging his enemy's forgiveness, clamored as loudly as the men. There was only the difference that the latter vociferated for the hanging of Happy. Their good ladies used the word punishment. And yet, while the place rang with condemnation of the little man in the jail and his attorney, there were voices here and there uplifted on the other side. People existed, it astonishingly appeared, who liked happy fear. These were for the greater part obscure and even darkling in their lives, yet quite demonstrably human beings, able to smile, suffer, leap, run, and to entertain fancies, even to have, according to their degree, a certain rudimentary sense of right and wrong, in spite of which they strongly favored the prisoner's acquittal. Precisely on that account, it was argued, an acquittal would outrage Canaan and lay it open to untold danger. Such people needed a lesson. The tocsin interviewed the town's great ones, printing their opinions on the heinousness of the crime and the character of the defendant's lawyer. The Honorable P. J. Parrott, who so ably represented this county in the legislature some fourteen years ago, could scarcely restrain himself when approached by a reporter as to his sentiments anent the repulsive deed. I should like to know how long Canaan is going to put up with this sort of business, were his words. I am a law-abiding citizen, and I have served faithfully, and with my full endeavor and ability, to enact the laws and statutes of my state. But there is a point in my patience, I would state, which lawbreakers and their lawyers may not safely pass. Of what use are our most solemn enactments, I may even ask, of what use is the legislature itself, chosen by the will of the people, if they are to ruthlessly be set aside by criminals and their shifty protectors? The blame should be put upon the lawyers who by tricks enable such rascals to escape the rigors of the carefully enacted laws, the fruits of the Solon's labor, more than upon the criminals themselves. In this case, if there is any miscarriage of justice, I will say here and now that in my opinion the people of this county will be sorely tempted, and while I do not believe in lynch law, yet if that should be the result it is my unalterable conviction that the vigilantes may well turn their attention to the lawyers, or lawyer, who bring about such miscarriage. I'm sick of it. The tocsin did not print the interview it obtained from Louis Farback, the same Louis Farback who long ago had owned a beer saloon with a little room behind the bar, where a shabby boy sometimes played dominoes and seven-up with loafers. Not quite the same Louis Farbach, however, in outward circumstance, for he was now the brewer of Farbach beer, and making Canaan famous. His rise had been Teutonic and sure, and he contributed one-twentieth of his income to the German orphan asylum, 
and one-tenth to his party's campaign fund the twentieth saved the orphans from the county while the tithe gave the county to his party he occupied a kitchen chair enjoying the society of some chickens in a wired enclosure behind the new italian villa he had erected in that part of canaan where he would be most uncomfortable and he looked woodenly at the reporter when the latter put his question have you any acquaintance of mr fear he inquired in return with no expression decipherable either upon his gargantuan face or in his heavily enfolded eyes no sir replied the reporter grinning i never ran across him dat is good thing for you said mr farback stonily he is not a man people better try to run across it is what cory tried now cory is dead the reporter slightly puzzled lit a cigarette see here mr farback he urged i only want a word or two about this thing and you might give me a brief expression concerning the man loudon besides just a hint of what you think of his influence here you know and of the kind of sharp work he practices something like that i see said the brewer slowly happy fear i have known for a good many years he is a good friend of mine what joe loudon is a better one continued mr farbach turning again to stare at his chickens get to it what get to it repeated the other without passion without anger without any expression whatsoever get to it the reporter's prejudice against the german nation dated from that moment there were others here and there who were less self-contained than the brewer a farmhand struck a fellow laborer in the forest field for speaking ill of joe and the unravelling of a strange street fight one day disclosed as its cause a like resentment on the part of a blind broom-maker engendered by a like offence the broom-maker's companion reading the tocsin as the two walked together had begun the quarrel by remarking that happy fear ought to be hanged once for his own sake and twice more to show up that shyster loudon warm words followed leading to extremely material conflict in which in spite of his blindness the broom-maker had so much the best of it that he was removed from the triumphant attitude he had assumed toward the person of his adversary which was an admirable imitation of the dismounted st george and the dragon and conveyed to the jail keenest investigation failed to reveal anything oblique in the man's record to the astonishment of canaan there was nothing against him he was blind and moderately poor but a respectable hard-working artisan and a pride to the church in which he was what has been called an active worker it was discovered that his sensitiveness to his companion's attack on joseph loudon arose from the fact that joe had obtained the acquittal of an imbecile sister of the blind man a two-thirds witted woman who had been charged with bigamy the tocsin made what it could of this and so dexterously that the wrath of canaan was one father jot increased against the shyster ah the town was hot inside and out let us consider the forum was there ever before such a summer for the national house corner how voices first thundered there then cracked and piped is not to be rendered in all the tales of the fathers one who would make vivid the great doings must indeed 
dip his brush in earthquake and eclipse even then he could but picture the credible and must despair of this the silence of eskew arp not that eskew held his tongue not that he was chary of speech no oh tempora oh mores no but that he refused the subject in hand that he eschewed expression upon it and resolutely drove the argument in other directions that he achieved such superbly unartlike inconsistency and with such rich material for his sardonic humours not at arm's length not even so far as his fingertips but beneath his very palms he rejected it this was the impossible fact eskew there is no option but to declare was no longer eskew it is the truth since the morning when ariel tabor came down from joe's office leaving her offering of white roses in that dingy dusty shady place eskew had not been himself his comrades observed it somewhat in a physical difference one of those alterations which may come upon men of his years suddenly like a sea change his face was whiter his walk slower his voice filled thinner he creaked louder when he rose or sat old always from his boyhood he had in the turn of the hand become aged but such things come and such things go after eighty there are ups and downs people fading away one week bloom out pleasantly the next and resiliency is not at all a pattern belonging to youth alone the material change in mr arp might have been thought little worth remarking what caused peter bradbury squire and buckaloo and the colonel to shake their heads secretly to one another and wonder if their good old friend's mind had not begun to go was something very different to come straight down to it he not only abstained from all argument upon the cory murder and the case of happy fear refusing to discuss either in any terms or under any circumstances but he also declined to speak of ariel tabor or of joseph louden or of their affairs singular or plural masculine feminine or neuter or in any declension not a word committal or non-committal none and his face when he was silent fell into sorrowful and troubled lines at first they merely marvelled then squire buckaloo dared to tempt him eskew's faded eyes showed a blue gleam but he withstood speaking of babylon to the disparagement of chicago they sought to lead him into what he evidently would not employing many devices but the old man was wily and often carried them far afield by secret ways of his own this hot morning he had done that thing they were close upon him pressing him hard when he roused that outburst which had stirred the idlers on the benches in the courthouse yard squire buckaloo sidelong at the others but squarely at eskew had volunteered the information that cory was a reformed priest stung by the mystery of eskew's silence the squire's imagination had become magically gymnastic and if anything under heaven could have lifted the veil this was the thing mr harp's reply may be referenced i consider he said deliberately that james g blaine's 
Burn policy was childish. What's more, I never thought much of him. This undefied Ajax, and every trace of the matter in hand went to the four winds. Eskew, like Rome, was saved by a cackle, in which he joined, and a few moments later, as the bench loafers saw, was pulled down into his seat by the colonel. The voices of the fathers fell to a pitch of ordinary discourse. The drowsy town was quiet again, the whine of the planing mill boring its way through the sizzling air to every wakening ear. Far away on a quiet street it sounded faintly, like the hum of a bee across a creek, and was drowned in the noise of men at work on the old Tabor house. It seemed the only busy place in Canaan that day, the shade of the big beech trees which surrounded it affording some shelter from the destroying sun to the dripping laborers who were sawing, hammering, painting, plumbing, papering, and ripping open old and new packing boxes. There were many changes in the old house pleasantly in keeping with its simple character airy enlargements now almost completed so that some of the rooms were already finished and stood furnished and immaculate ready for tenancy in that which had been roger tabor's studio sat ariel alone she had caused some chests and cases stored there to be opened and had taken out of them a few of roger's canvases and set them along the wall tears filled her eyes as she looked at them seeing the tragedy of labor the old man had expended upon them but she felt the recompense hard tight literal as they were he had had his moment of joy in each of them before he saw them coldly and knew the truth and he had been given his years of paris at last and had seen how the other fellows did it a heavy foot strode through the hall coming abruptly to a halt in the doorway and turning she discovered martin pike his big henry the eighth face flushed more with anger than with the heat his hat was upon his head and remained there nor did he offer any token or word of greeting whatever but demanded to know when the work upon the house had been begun the second morning after my return she answered i want to know he pursued why it was kept secret from me and i want to know quick secret she echoed with a wave of her hand to indicate the noise which the workmen were making upon whose authority was it begun mine who else could get it look here he said advancing toward her don't you try to fool me you haven't done all of this by yourself who hired these workmen remembering her first interview with him she rose quickly before he could come near her mr louden made most of the arrangements for me she replied quietly before he went away he will take charge of everything when he returns you haven't forgotten that i told you i intended to place my affairs in his hands he had started forward but at this he stopped and stared at her inarticulately you remember she said her hands resting negligently upon the back of the chair surely you remember she was not in the least afraid of him but coolly watchful of him this had been her habit with him since her return she had seen little of him except at table when he was usually grimly laconic though now and then she would hear him joking heavily with sam warden in the yard or with evidently humorous intent 
groaning at Mamie over Eugene's health. But it had not escaped Ariel that he was, on his part, watchful of herself, and upon his guard with a wariness in which she was sometimes surprised to believe that she saw an almost haggard apprehension. He did not answer her question, and it seemed to her, as she continued steadily to meet his hot eyes, that he was trying to hold himself under some measure of control, and a vain effort it proved. You go back to my house, he burst out, shouting hoarsely. You get back there. You stay there. No, she said, moving between him and the door. Mamie and I are going for a drive. You go back to my house. He followed her, waving an arm fiercely at her. Don't you come around here trying to run over me. You talk about your affairs. All you've got on earth is this two-for-a-nickel old shack over your head and a bushel basket of distillery stock that you can sell by the pound for old paper. He threw the words in her face. The bull-bass voice seemed and cracked with falsetto. Old paper! Old rags! old iron bottles old clothes you talk about your affairs who are you rothschild you haven't got any affairs not a look not a word not a motion of his escaped her in all the fury of sound and gesture in which he seemed fairly to envelop himself least of all did that shaking of his the quivering of jaw and temple the tumultuous agitation of his hands evade her watchfulness when did you find this out she said very quickly after you became administrator he struck the back of the chair she had vacated a vicious blow with his open hand no you spendthrift all there was to your grandfather when you buried him was a basket full of distillery stock i tell you old paper can't you hear me old paper old rags you've sent me the same income she lifted her voice to interrupt you've made the same quarterly payments since his death that you made before if you knew why did you do that he had been shouting at her with the frantic and incredulous exasperation of an intolerant man utterly unused to opposition his face empurpled his forehead dripping and his hands ruthlessly pounding the back of the chair but this straight question stripped him suddenly of gesture and left him standing limp and still before her pale splotches beginning to show on his hot cheeks if you knew why did you do it she repeated you wrote me that my income was from dividends and i knew and thought nothing about it but if the stock which came to me was worthless how could it pay dividends it did not he answered huskily that distillery stock i tell you isn't worth the matches to burn it but there has been no difference in my income she persisted steadily why can you explain that to me yes i can he replied and it seemed to her that he spoke with a pallid and bitter desperation like a man driven to the wall i can if you think you want to know i do i send it you mean from your own i mean it was my own money she had not taken her eyes from his which met her straightly and angrily and at this she leaned forward gazing at him with profound scrutiny why did you send it she asked charity he answered after palpable hesitation her eyes widened and she leaned back against the lintel of the door staring at him incredulously charity 
she echoed in a whisper. Perhaps he mistook her amazement at his performance for dismay caused by the sense of her own position, for as she seemed to weaken before him, the strength of his own habit of dominance came back to him. Charity, madam, he broke out, shouting intolerably. Charity, do you hear? I was a friend of the man that made the money you and your grandfather squandered. I was a friend of Jonas Tabor, I say. That's why I was willing to support you for a year and over, rather than let a niece of his suffer. Suffer, she cried. Support. You sent me a hundred thousand francs. The white splotches which had mottled Martin Pike's face disappeared, as if they had been suddenly splotched with hot red. You go back to my house, he said. What I sent you only shows the extent of my effrontery. The word rang through the whole house so loudly and clearly did she strike it, ring in his ears till it stung like a castigation. It was ominous, portentous of justice and of disaster. There was more than doubt of him in it. There was conviction. He fell back from this word, and when he again advanced, Ariel had left the house. She had turned the next corner before he came out of the gate, and as he passed his own home on his way downtown, he saw her white dress mingling with his daughter's near the horse-block beside the fire, where the two, with their arms about each other, stood waiting for Sam Warden and the open summer carriage. Judge Pike walked on, the white splotches reappearing like a pale rash upon his face. A yellow butterfly zigzagged before him knee-high across the sidewalk he raised his foot and half kicked at it End of chapter eighteen